Amen. Go and have a seat, everybody. Uh, welcome, those of you who are joining us online or right here in the historic Ritz Theater here in downtown Escondido. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in Matthew 19 as we look at the Word of God together. Um, and so if you have a Bible app or a good old-fashioned print Bible and you want to uh, open that up, that would be awesome. You know, as, as you're doing that, I just want to tell you what happened here over the last, you know, over the weekend, especially like the last couple of weekends, we had a show in here that Class, Classical Academy Middle School did. It was the Lion King Jr. I got to come on Friday evening to the early show. And I just have to tell you, it was absolutely mind-bogglingly good. Um, they, they, did, they filmed a full-length feature film and then had live acting going on with the film. They actually recorded the soundtrack in a studio and everything. I mean, it was absolutely ridiculously good. And it was so cool to sit here and to watch... Uh, that portion of the vision of this facility start to come to life. After all that everybody's been through, whether it was the kids and the work they put in on that, getting back in school, getting back to doing their thing, and then being able to do it in this environment, um, which is was the point. It's why we, why we built it. And so I just want to encourage you, you know, stay in touch with what's going on uh, at the Grand and the Ritz. I understand that um, everything that happens from the stage, that the views expressed from the stage are not necessarily those of New Vintage Church, uh, because the, uh, the people that use this stage uh, come from all walks of life and everything, and that's also a part of why it was built. But boy, I'll tell you what, uh, that show was incredible. So I want to encourage you to stay in touch with what's going on. Uh, that's one of the cool things about being able to go to church uh, here. Dan, I'll get you later, my man. Um, so we're in a series called Dancing on Eggshells, and here's how we define that, okay? Dancing on eggshells is gliding gracefully on delicate subjects, regardless of the crunch. That's our way of saying we're going to go ahead and tell it like it is. Uh, we're going to go ahead and make sure that um, we say what the Bible says uh, about these different subjects, because if we don't, they're not going to get said. And it's vital that we, we get these things said. Because otherwise, what we end up doing is surrendering the microphone to culture. So when it comes down to a subject like marriage, then we end up in a difficult spot, because uh, marriage has been uh, redefined in all sorts of ways by all different kinds of people. And I don't know that we're necessarily better off for it. I know we're not better off for it, in fact. So we want to go back to what the Bible actually says uh, and take a look at its, what marriage is supposed to be at its foundational level. Next week, I'll put a bug in your ear, uh, it, it, we're going to be talking about sex, among other subjects, and it will be at least a PG-12 sermon, all right? So it could be a PG-20 like or something. We'll see. Hopefully it'll be 12. If you have not checked out the children's ministry before, that might be your chance, parents, um, to go ahead and make sure, especially if there are conversations you have not yet had with your kids. So there's your caveat. If you're listening to us online and you're going to be back next week, wherever you may be, now you know. All right, off we go. Socrates, the great philosopher, said this, by all means, marry. If you get a good wife, you'll become happy. If you get a bad one, you will become a philosopher. And uh, I thought to myself, oh, poor Mrs. Socrates. Um, rough on her. Rough on her. Uh, what he was saying is not entirely off course, that if you are in a bad marriage, there are very few things that this life can offer you that are worse than that. Uh, that there are few hells on earth like a terrible bad marriage. On the other hand, if you're in an abundant marriage, there are very few things that can offer you as much joy and fulfillment 
as exist in that. Now, most of us are somewhere kind of bouncing around in between these two, right? It's not a perfect marriage, you know, a perfect one where everybody, you know, oh, we've been married 86 years and we've never fought. And, or, or one of those little, hey, our Instagram account looks awesome and we take cute little pictures and we have cute little kids that are all smart and perfect and their teeth are all straight and, and they never get sick, they never act out at school, they just say, yes, mom, yes, dad, whatever they say, and yada, 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 yada. That's one end, right? Or the other one where it's like, you know, um, you know Al Bundy and married with children or something, a very leathery, um, everybody's always insulting each other, but they've been married for 60 years, right? And then you have marriages that, that they claim go well, but they just end because they grow up. Think celebrity marriages here where, you know, two, three years in, oh, we're still the best of friends. And, uh, you know, and you sit there and you go, oh, I thought it would last forever. And then over here, you've got the other ones where you've got rock solid and they do last a long time and they're abundant, right? You've got all these different types. Most of us kind of bounce around in between these and move from one uh, area to the next, but but the idea that marriage is supposed to go on for a long time, and by long time, I mean till death do us part long, okay, that is getting lost, and that is really the foundation that the Bible lays for it, and the reason is that the marital covenant, not contract, contracts are stuff you have with your cable company, your cell phone provider, not your wife or your husband. Covenant is different. A covenant is similar to what I do when I'm baptized. When I get baptized, I say to God, I put my hand in the air, I'm around these witnesses, and I say, you know what, it's going to be Jesus first in my life for the rest of my life. In every aspect, the old Tim's gone, the new Tim's here. That's a covenant, right? He's faithful to his, and, and I'm faithful to mine. Now, there may be some where I'm more faithful than other times, but my full intention is to walk with Jesus first in every aspect of my life. And because of that, then, that also includes what goes on under my rooftop. Whether I'm a single person, as we talked about last week, or a married person, the objective is still the same. That's to glorify God and put Jesus first in every aspect of your life. That's what your life is for. That's how you experience the abundant life that Jesus provides. So, uh, as we get going this morning, let me just tell you that that's where we're going to be going, okay? Because we uh, we are more confused about marriage than we have ever been. We don't know who ought to get married for how long, when, what it's about. And all of this is at part, the, the root of it is the false gospel of self that continues to be preached ever more loudly from the pulpits of the media and music and um, whoever it is that we go to for advice. We're taught that our personal happiness is of utmost concern, that our very purpose in this world is to be happy, to live our truth, whatever the heck that means, um, and to fulfill our purpose, whatever that may be. So marriage, we're, we're told, is good and worthwhile to the extent as it contributes to our happiness and our sense of personal fulfillment. And so as that kind of mentality has been going over and over and over over the years now, we've gotten to a point that it's led us to things like, uh, I read about uh, some time ago, and the headline was, The Great Divorce Boom. And they were talking about the skyrocketing rate of divorce among people who are over 50 years old. So these are people who have been married for decades. So uh, here's what the article said. Until recently, it would have been fair to say that older people simply did not get divorced, fewer than 10% of people who got divorced in 1990. 
were ages 50 or older. Today, one in four people getting divorced is in this age group, and actually today it's one in three, okay? The rise in what you would call gray divorce uh, is a product of dramatic changes in the meaning of marriage in America over the last half century. This is the article I'm quoting here, okay? Today, we live in an era of individualized marriage. Now, listen to, to the word language carefully here. We live in an era of individualized marriage in which those who wed have high expectations for marital success. Americans expect marriage to provide them not simply with stability and security, but also with self-fulfillment and personal satisfaction. Roles are flexible. The traditional breadwinner homemaker model is no longer the status quo. Good spouses engage in open communication and are best friends. This is a high bar for many to achieve, let alone maintain over decades while juggling work and child rearing. Now listen to this. If a marriage is not achieving these goals, then divorce is an acceptable solution, according to most Americans. As Ann Landers, and some of you may not know that name, she was the great advice giver that you would read in the newspaper. As Ann Landers famously advised those considering divorce, simply answer the question, are you better off with or without your spouse? Huh. That's advice, huh? Well, which day is it? Which time of the day is it on that day? Uh, those who've been married for any length of time know, and in fact, <laughs> my wife will vouch for this. We were we, we, we once went over, when, I think we were engaged at the time, we went over to one of my professor's houses and hung out and ate with he and his wife. They've been married for a long time. Um, they're about to hit 50 years. And we went over to their house, and she was talking about how important it is that you understand that this thing here is for life. And she said, because, she goes, you're going to go through very long stretches where you may find a way to love your spouse, but you may not like your spouse at all. And she said something like this. She goes, like the 90s, I didn't even like him. <laughs> like she was about 10 years, she didn't even like her spouse, right? But they hung with it, right? And, and you come out of it, right? But if the, if the measuring stick for me is, hey, is my life better off with or without you? Not only is it not going to last forever, but listen to the grid you're using to decide if anything is worthwhile. Does it make me happy or not? Well, what are your friendships going to look like if you apply that? How does one actually become a giver in society, a person who actually contributes something positive when the grid is simply, do I think I'm better off with or without you? Without stopping to ask the question, are they better off with or without me, right? And that if your spouse were to decide that on a given day, you know what? Nobody would be married. Nobody. Or they'd be married for a week or two. Uh, my wife and I got in a big fight on the honeymoon. I would have just said, you know what? Hey, get on that plane and go back, or I'll go back. It's over. I don't know. Because, because that kind of temporal you know, thing, it's not even, a, it's not even like a, a thermostat that kind of self-regulates the emotion and stuff and says, no, we're in this for the long haul. If you have an exit, especially an easy one, okay, you are going to be married differently than a couple who allows divorce to be an option in their life. I implore you, don't ever use the word in your house. Don't think of it as an option. Pretend, this may not be the best analogy, but that they are your cellmate and you guys are, have life without parole. You are going to have to find a way to get along with that person, right? 
When you know that that's not the case, but here's what it does for you, right? You might go, oh, no, who wants that? I want to be able to take the slip and slide out the door whenever I get the chance. No, 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 no. Because when you realize that this thing is for life, you behave differently. Romance is different when I know they are not going anywhere. Your fights are different. Everything changes with a biblical foundation for your relationship and your marriage. But when you don't have that and you think, hey, you know what? If today, if I say the wrong thing, I do the wrong thing. If I don't uh, make them happy in every aspect of their life, they might take a quick exit because now they may go, oh, you know what? I think my life's better off without them than with them. That kills romance. That kills intimacy. It kills so many of the life-giving aspects of marriage to where it takes almost every marriage that would be over here on the abundance side and pushes it a little bit more toward the other side. Because I don't know if you're committed to me or not, so i got to hold back. Or I have to act for you. I have to play a role, play a part. Or you might, you might bolt, and I don't want to see that happen. Well, in Matthew 19, the Pharisees come to Jesus and I think the, the, the show that Chosen, I don't know if any of you guys have caught that, but if you watch it, they kind of take the, the Gospels and turn them into a TV show. And so you watch it in a very different way. They do a brilliant job with this aspect and this particular kind of argument that's going on in Matthew 19, where the Pharisees, there are different schools of thought, and the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. So they come to Jesus. Here's what the text says in Matthew 19. They want to get him in, uh, pinned down on marriage and divorce. Here's what he says. It says, when Jesus had finished these things, this is Matthew 19, 1 to 9, he went away from Galilee, entered the region of Judah beyond the Jordan, and the large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up, and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That's usually the last line I say in almost any wedding ceremony, uh, other than you may kiss the bride. Okay? They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Hmm. Well then. All right, that's a typical set of questions. Picture this like when the Pharisees come and they try to trap him on paying taxes. Should we pay our taxes or not pay our taxes? Because they're trying to get him trapped between both sides. Here... The issue is kind of behind the text, so allow me to Bible nerd out with you for like five minutes. I think it'll pay off, all right? You've got these different Pharisaical schools, right? So you have the tribes of the Pharisees, but you had different teachers. And you had two particular schools. One was a guy named Shammai. Another was named Hillel. And in Shammai's case, uh, everything was very strict, so among the Pharisees, they have their kind of mega teachers. Shammai and those who kind of followed his teaching, he said, a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her. This is kind of what Jesus is echoing here, right? The school of Hillel says he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. Woo! She burns something in the microwave and you can divorce her? That's crazy. Like, uh, you know, you just go, hello, what are you talking about? Um, so you can kind of guess which side, but there's an internal debate among the teachers of the law 
about how easily and quickly somebody ought to be able to do it. So the idea here is we're going to stir up trouble to where we can get everybody kind of, uh, to, you know, to, to attack Jesus. It's like saying, oh, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? If he says no, then Rome's going to get him. And if he says yes, then the zealots are going to get him. So it's perfect. We can do him in by trapping him in this saw, okay? So that's what's kind of going on back here. Let me give you a couple other teachers that were running around in the similar era. Uh, there's a fellow by the name of Rabbi Akiba. He says that a man may divorce her even if he has found another fairer than she. Woo! All right, we're moving on. Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, first century, he says that a man may divorce his wife for whatsoever cause. So he's a little bit more like the LA Times and Ann Landers, okay? Uh, Jesus' explanation, basically, is important, and this is where it starts. If you want your number one marriage tip, here it is. You don't get to define their marriage if you're a Christian. You don't. Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. And it's ironic that he goes to the Pharisees and he starts with, have you not read Genesis 1 to 3? And they're probably going, well, of course we've read it. Well, what does it say? That God created man and woman and that they would come together and be united, and the two would become one flesh. And so what God has joined together, let no one separate. So what are you asking me? Is basically what he says. Do you remember what God did? Do you remember what, go back to Genesis and creation and how God sees Adam there, and he goes, it's not good that he should be alone. So he creates woman, and he brings her to him, and Adam's thrilled and they come together, and God says, great, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And here we are. All right? So that's how, and so all he does is say, you're, you're, you're getting caught up in the cultural arguments of the day. Leave that and go back. What did God tell you? What did he tell you? Now, it's kind of embarrassing that he has to tell them this. They're Pharisees. They're supposed to have this stuff and just spit it from memory. But here they are falling into the traps of the teachers of their own day. And, trying, and getting pulled offline because of that. Marriage is not ours to trifle with. Because God created it. He's over it. He supports it. He empowers it. He sustains it. He fills it with abundance. But it is a divine, get this, and not civil institution. Okay? What does that mean? It means that the government does not define or determine what God holds to be a valid marriage, okay? Now, God created human beings, the institution of marriage. He sustains both. He's Lord over both. And as he says, well, well God's joined together. Let no man separate. So our society is trying to re rewrite that to say, what man has joined together, let not man separate. Wrong. God joined it together. So for two people who are married, who are now one flesh, it would be like somebody trying to pull me into two people, rip me into two. He says, that's what it's like when divorce happens. So he says, when God has joined you together, let not man separate. See, so marriage is a divine joining of people together. We're not to separate it. So even though society tries to define it differently, he says, one man one woman, till death do they part, they become one flesh. Sometimes, I'll have young people, they want to get married, they come to me for premarital counseling. 
uh, within the first three to four questions that they have, I will get this out of at least half the people that come. Do you think we should have one bank account or two? Are you one flesh? Or two fleshes? We know the spiritual hold that money has over people. So if you're giving one another an allowance, or if you're saying, I don't trust you enough to pull our bank accounts together. I'll have kids with you. I'll buy houses with you. But I'm not going to share a paycheck with you. Good luck on the intimacy front. Now, some of you are going to get real mad by that because you have two bank accounts. But here's the beauty of it, right? I, I don't care. All right? So <laughs> all, I'm saying, all I'm saying is, listen, I've been at this a long time, and, 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 I, and my wife's sitting in the, whatever this is, third row, and she will tell you, we probably fought about money more than almost anything else. But if we finally made that decision and said, okay, I'm going to take, I'm going to take, you know, you take your money that you earn, I'll take the money that I earn. But really, we're united. We're one. Where, where she has to, like, come to me for money. Oh, it feels so wonderful. I can control my wife or whatever. Or, or no, I'll spend it my way and we'll see who has a bigger stack of money by the time it's over. Are you kidding me? How are you going to have intimacy that way? One flesh certainly means one wallet, I would think. You guys are going to have kids together. You're going you're gonna to share a house together. Physical intimacy. Till death do us part. If it's till death do us part, then why do you need different stacks of money? <laughs> right? Uh, so, so all I'm suggesting to you is, right, the, the small ways that I see this pop up in culture. God is saying, and Jesus is saying this here, and he's not setting up a new legalism or a set of ordinances. He's making clear the meaning of God's law in a society in which divorcing one's wife for nearly any reason was possible following just a few little legal steps. Jesus says, no, that's not what marriage is. It is a covenant. It is not a contract. See, in a contract with my cell phone provider, I pay them whatever, 40 bucks a month, your job is to make sure that when I want to make a phone call, I can make it. All right, you provide me some data so I can mess around on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Uh, that's the contract. If you stop, okay, I pay you this, you give me that, that's the deal. If one of us stops doing it, they will cut off my service. If I don't pay, if they don't provide the service, I get rid of them and I move to AT&T or something else, right? That's what a contract, not a covenant. Covenant's different. A covenant is like what I did on November 29th, 1987, when I gave my life to Christ in baptism. And I said, Lord, you, me, you're over my life, not my will but thine, every day for the rest of my life. And that covenant shapes every other covenant in my life. My marriage covenant, my covenant to my kids to, to protect them and honor them, provide for them. Any covenant that I make in this life has to be informed by my baptismal covenant. All right, don't let that scare you. I know it's a big word. But what the difference would be uh, a, a contract is easy to break. It's legislative, but it's not transformative. Right? Uh, we have a contract with people who use the stage here. Right? But our covenant is really with the church. Um, you can, we can just say, okay, we're not doing another deal with those people or whatever. But the church, no, we're, we're together. We're a body. That's different. You know the difference? I think you do. 
if you understand your baptismal covenant, the covenant that between you and Christ that says, yes, I'm going to put you first in every area of my life, then that means that I put him first in every area of my life. That means the way I raise my kids, my, uh, the way that I, I relate to my wife. I now hear the words of Scripture, and I say my job is not fundamentally to make my wife happy on a daily basis, though I hope she is, is to make her holy, because the calling of a husband in Ephesians 5 is that, that she and I submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and as she grows in respect for me, my love for her is Christ loves the church and gave himself up for it. That's a high calling. That's a lot better than, hey, you know what? Uh, am I better off with her or not? I mean, one's made a, like, silly string, and, and one's made of something deeper and stronger. Aren't we glad that God didn't sit up there at some point and go, you know what? Am I better off with Tim or not today? Eh, I'm done with him then. See you. No, because God's part, that's a covenant, right? We're in covenant to one another. The bond that bonds me to God is the blood of his son Christ, right? Not, not his whims. It's, it's the blood of Christ that bonds me to God. And what Paul will say in Ephesians 5 is that the same blood that bonds me to him also bonds me to my spouse. It's a covenant not just between me and my wife, me, my wife, and Christ. It's all of that, right? So uh, i got to hustle, man. But let me tell you this. You come to me and you ask me to marry you. Uh, I tried this once or twice, and, and it was, um, I just wasn't comfortable with it. The Holy Spirit kind of convicted me on this. People used to say, used to, it got in about 15 years ago to write your own vows when you got married. And what would happen is, uh, what I would end up with is a, is a bunch of goo. From the moment I saw you, I knew you were the one. When I look in your face, I, you know, whatever. Okay? You're committing to nothing. That is not a vow. That is a Hallmark card. That is a Hallmark Network special. That is not a covenant. Here's what a covenant sounds like. You ready for this? Here we go. I, state your name, I, Tim Spivey, take you, Emily, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, mostly poorer, right? <laughs> poorer in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish from this day forward till death do us part, till death do us part, till death do us part. And that means even if for some splitting second, I think, oh, maybe I'd be better off. Oh, maybe I'd be happier. Maybe I would. It's irrelevant in Scripture. It's not relevant. Yes, God wants us, would like us to be happy. But what he's saying is the way that you get to develop happiness in marriage is you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And in so doing, imagine this, that each spouse is actually relentlessly focused on their own holiness and sanctification before God. That I spend my time as a husband, instead of going, boy, I wish she was a better wife, I focus on myself and becoming more Christ-like. So instead of that, I'm growing in self-control and patience and gentleness. And I'm listening to what Scripture tells me about the kind of man I'm called to be and how I'm supposed to love my wife, as opposed to focusing on everything I think she's not doing for me. Now, she should be doing the same thing, and as we both grow together, that provides the foundation and, by the way, better intimacy because you're secure in your love. You're not worried about them bolting. 
You're not worried if you put on a few extra pounds that the marriage might be over. You're not worried about the fact that if I lose all my hair, then she may not want to date me anymore, go out with me anymore, marry me anymore, whatever, right? You're not thinking about that because you know we're in this till death was part. And that provides then the foundation for better intimacy. And yes, I'm going to say it again for the people in the back, better sex, which we'll talk about next week. So hide the children next week, but show up as grown-ups, okay, because that's going to be a good one. Moving on. <laughs> All right, I'm going to introduce you to a couple real quick. This is Patrick Downs and Ken's, uh, Jessica Downs. All right. So, I mean, look at them. Aren't they cute? Her dress is swooshing, uh, smiling. They both look pretty fit. They're a kind of couple that if you're unhappy, you see this Instagram picture. This was their engagement photo. You want to punch them both, right? If you feel bad about yourself, very eco-friendly, look at all those bicycles and scooters in the back. All right. Well, they were both are pretty fit, actually, and so they decided that one of the ways they were going to celebrate getting married was they were going to run the Boston Marathon together. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, I don't want to, I, I don't run unless you're chasing me with a knife. But they, they, uh, they, they decided to do that, right? So they... They go, all right, hey, let's run Boston together. What happened to be the year that the bomber hit? And they were both in the blast zone, and they both became amputees as newlyweds. So that turned into this next picture. Let's go put the next one up. So what do you do? That's not what I signed up for. I signed up for the first picture. I thought it was, you know, till Instagram do its part. I got to deal with a spouse now that, that's missing legs. And I'm missing one. And I'm unhappy. And I'm scared. And I'm sad. What do you do? Well, they decided to stick together. There's a picture of them in the rehab moment, when they start trying to stick together, they work out together, and they said, you know what, we're gonna, once we get back, we're going to keep running together, even though we only got one leg each. Here's a picture of them outside Central Park. Go ahead and put that up. Then she's putting on her prosthetic leg to be able to run. Wasn't easy for them, I'm sure. They ended up staying together, she wrote a book about, she got a dog and about her, how her dog helped her kind of get through it. And I was thought, what about your husband? He's there too. <laughs> but whatever, you know, you made it through and you're still married and you're still happy. Here's a picture of them and the infamous dog. But let me put, go to the next slide real quick. <clears throat> so let me ask you, the next one, there you go. Um, which one of those is marriage? Right? Now, most people would say when they picture marriage and wanting a happy marriage, they're going to start there. And if I gave you a choice, you'd say, well, I'll take option four next if I'm ranking them. But the reality is marriage is all that, right? Like no one, no one lives on the far left. That's not marriage. That's an Instagram account. 
uh, you know, we'll call it uh, leather to lemon heads. You got different types of marriages. You got the leathery ones. It's like the far right over here. You can beat them up. They go through World War II together. Sickness, cancer, kids spinning out, death of a child. I had a, a person in the congregation I served at in Dallas. He was a judge. He lost five kids to drunk driving accidents in three different accidents and sat as a sitting judge in cases where DUI drivers would come before him. How do you move on from that? How do you stay married through all that? Leather. Lemonheads. My favorite candy. Maybe gummy bears is right there. That's the left. Sweet. Zero nutrition in it whatsoever. <laughs> Give you cavities if all you do is eat that stuff, right? What Jesus is trying to tell them is marriage is more, it's not all pain and suffering. Don't, don't be wrong. But that marriage does something different. Theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He wrote, he wrote this to a young married couple. He said, it is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on the marriage that sustains your love. Let me say that again for the people in the back. It is not your love that sustains the marriage. Well, I don't love them anymore, so now I don't want to be married to them anymore. No, no, no. It's actually flipped. Now the marriage, your covenant to that person will sustain your love. This isn't to say that, of course, that there's anything wrong with romance. I want to be clear about that. We'll talk about that next week. But covenant is the ground in which the flower of romance is planted. The healthier the sense of covenant we have, the greater the romance can become. Romance itself is quite the shifting ground. If you get married, it will likely be, uh, happy Valentine's Day, uh, the hardest thing you're ever going to do. Okay? Don't elbow your spouse or amen here. But it is likely to be the hardest thing you'll ever do. But it will also likely be, if you follow the teachings of Jesus here, that which shapes you more into the image of Christ than anything else you will ever do. There will be romance, there will be sex, there will be enjoyment of the other person, but more than that, marriage will be a crucible that will refine you like, in, like few other things can. It ought to make us more godly, not less godly. So marriage is for those who are able to be one flesh with their spouse. Divorce, Jesus says, that was for the hard-hearted. It was not really a part of the original plan. Now, he's not saying, I want to be clear on this, that divorce is not something that can be redeemed. He wants to make clear that, though, that it was not actually a part of the script, that it wasn't part of God's original plan for marriage. Uh, it doesn't mean your life is over if that's happened. Obviously, I hope that that's understood. But if it's not, let me just say that, too. It doesn't mean that, that that's the end of your spiritual life as you know it or anything like that. But it just means that that's a sign, that that's something that happens as a result of the brokenness of the world we live in. Uh, Jesus does allow for it in the text, um, but it's exceptional. It's not supposed to be typical. It's not supposed to be common. It's supposed to be atypical and something that uh, is an aberration to the plan of God as opposed to part of the plan, okay? God's plan is for people to thrive in the covenant that they've made with God and one another. Well, how does that happen? The baptismal covenant, okay, that you've made with God, and if you haven't, then it starts there, is the central covenant in our life. 
So when your spouse, first of all, it provides the security for the marriage because now we know what, what Jesus' will for, is for the marriage. One man, one woman, until death do you part. Then from there, because of my commitment to Christ, that actually leads me back to treating my wife the way I should when I don't feel like it. Submit to one another, Ephesians 5.21, out of reverence for Christ. Well, what if they're awful? Submit to one another, not out of reverence for your husband or wife. Christ. I'm doing it because that's what Christ calls me to do. Well, what if they aren't making me happy anymore? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Does it mean that either spouse, because God will hold the spouse, you, you accountable for how you treat your spouse. So it's not like a blank check to treat your spouse however you want. It's actually quite the opposite. It's saying that, that when you sin against your spouse, when you do treat them poorly, it's not just them you're treating poorly. It's Christ himself, right? So it raises the bar. It doesn't pull it down. So as we continue to go, please don't, don't, don't think that, uh, um, you know, that it gives somebody a blank check to do whatever they want. It's actually the opposite. But what it does is it forces me to take responsibility for how I'm acting and responding in the marriage as opposed to putting all the expectations, all the blame on my wife. Gary Thomas, who wrote a book called Sacred Marriage, it's fantastic. I would recommend it to everybody in the room. He said, the times I'm happiest and most fulfilled in my marriage are the times when I'm intent on drawing meaning and fulfillment from becoming a better husband rather than from demanding a better wife. You know what he's saying? Focusing on my own sanctification, my own growth. Because as I do, the Holy Spirit does his work in my life, does those incisive kinds of healing and cutting and pasting and moving around, getting rid of things that need to be tossed, putting things in there that aren't there, that are good. And it causes me to become a better husband, and I'm likely to get further because I can't change my spouse anyway. I know you think you can. You can't. Your best bet, okay, in this life to get them to change is for them to change themselves by anchoring themselves to the gospel again on a daily basis. And that's why he's saying, you know, when I focus on myself, it tends to go a lot better than when I try to get them to be better. A marriage mission statement could go something like this. Following Jesus and loving one another together till death do us part. That is the sum of the biblical teaching on marriage in like a sentence. Okay? You love one another. You serve the Lord together. Together all the time, till death do you part. And what it does is clarify things that matter and aims the marriage in the right direction. Now, never to be left out. At the end of that text, Peter pipes up uh, with a question and basically says, well, then who should get married? Nobody wants to get married then if they can't get out of it. Here's how he puts it. The disciples said to him, this is at Matthew 19, 10 to 12, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth, eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now, what does he, what's that mean? We're almost done here. But what he says is, he's saying, listen, there are some people who do this by choice, 
who are single by choice because they want to serve the Lord. There are some people uh, who are single. So eunuch is a, a man who was emasculated in the ancient world to, to provide safety usually for people. They, were, they would hang out around the king, queen, emperors, rulers like that um, to, to just make sure there was, there was no uh, adultery going on in the court. All right. So among other things, I would go on. He's saying he's using a spiritual analogy here, and he's saying, hey, listen, there, there are people who were made that way for a bunch of different reasons. But he says marriage is a beautiful thing for those that God has called to that thing. But you've got to do it in that particular way. The assumption here is, well, if I can't get out of it, then nobody should get married. And he says, no, 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 no. That's not what singleness is. Singleness is not the avoidance of responsibility or commitment, okay? As we, t- we talked about singleness last week, so I won't go down that road too far, but he goes back and echoes that marriage and singleness still have the same calling. Honoring God, putting Jesus first in every aspect of your life, whether you're called to it by God, whether somebody else, um, you know, you've done that for the sake of somebody else or you've had something bad happen in your life and that's why you're that way, or whether you make that decision. It's all about the same thing. And the mission of the single person and the married person are the same. It's just a matter of context. Okay? So if you're single, you honor God above everything else. If you're married, you honor God above everything else. It's just that the context in which you're doing it and the implications of that aim for your life are different. Marriage is, again, about sanctification, and our sanctification cultivates a a healthy marriage. All right? All right, i got to wrap up. So we're going to do this quick. Um, there's this range of, of mountains, uh, western kind of Cascade Mountains in Washington, which have been there, and they're one of the oldest ranges of trees out there. And one of the reasons is they are so wet, it rains all the time there, that when lightning strikes them, nothing happens. Like lightning can't set them ablaze because it's too soggy. Uh, and what I want to encourage you to do, all right, is to make sure that the Holy Spirit douses your relationships, your marriage, with enough of the Holy Spirit's reign that no matter what hits it, it's not destroyed. That's what God is trying to give us. Something that's got a foundation that's strong enough and aim higher than ourselves and our own self-reality and our own purpose and our own truth and our own whatever. So there are skills that we can learn We'll look to some of those next week. The Bible does offer a few of those. But there's a difference between a tool actually in the hand of a person who means to do harm to the other person or doesn't, isn't grounded well can be scary. A knife in the hand of the wrong person can be very terrifying. A knife in the hand of a chef. Well, that's a beautiful thing, <laughs> right? So that's what we're going to turn to next week. Uh, I hope something today has been helpful to you. God bless you. And uh, we're going to turn to the Lord's table now. Um, you should have gotten a little bag with the elements inside, a little uh, piece of bread and the cup. And those are symbols of the body and blood of Jesus, the one who is faithful in his covenant to us and has shown us what love looks like by laying his life down for us. Okay? Um, so we remember him now with bread and cup. So I'll offer, if you didn't get one, and by the way, and you'd like one, we do have some ushers handing them out. Um, Okay. Let me offer a word of prayer for us, and uh, we'll take communion together. Father, uh, now for the great love of Christ that made us who we are, 
we are in covenant with him first. The covenant that informs all the other covenants, Father, we love you. We are thankful for Jesus. We are thankful, Father, that when we are faithless, sometimes you are faithful. Father, make us more consistent in our love for you. Renew our covenant with you this morning and help that, Father, to spill into the relationships we've got. Father, those who are dating now seriously that are in our midst and haven't been married yet, Father, may they they hear these words and understand that your word teaches them to put Christ first in every aspect of their life and what marriage is. Father, for those who um, have been married for some time and are struggling, uh, Father, may this be a day of renewal for them. Where they go, you know what, let's put Jesus at the center again and let's focus on improving ourselves, uh, becoming more Christ-like each, each one of us. Let's stop blaming each other and start being transformed by the renewing of our minds by laying our lives back down on the altar. Uh, Father, for the gift of the word, we give you thanks. And Father, may it resound beyond these walls. May we renew the power and the meaning of marriage, Father, um, all around this country and beyond. It is a beautiful thing, and we thank you for giving it to us as a gift. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.